Hello everyone, Dr. Stillman here. Today I am excited to be talking about how I use UVB light to heal patients in my practice and to help them stay healthy. I think this is one of the most exciting and underrated and underutilized modalities of medicine out there. It is simple, it is cheap, it is effective, and it beats the pants off of a lot of its competitors. However, understanding how UVB light can help or hurt you is a really, really good idea before you go out there and say, buy a Spurdy vitamin D lamp and go crazy with it, all right? For the record, I'm an affiliate of Spurdy's. The link below in the comments uh, will get you a discount on the Spurdy vitamin D lamp. That code, if you don't have it, is STILLMANMD. I think it gives you a discount, but I could be wrong about that. And in any event, I want you guys to understand how UVB light works before you start trying to use it to heal yourself and others. I also want to mention that I've got a thyroid webinar coming up at the end of the month. Make sure you're opted into either my Substack email list or the email list over at stillmanwellness.com to get updates on that. It is going to be a game-changing webinar for those of you struggling with energy fatigue, mood, libido, weight gain, and other issues that may relate to the thyroid gland. We are going to be spilling the beans on what we learned from doing a big program with 60 people total that we took, took on in February, uh, which actually ran through June, what we saw in their labs, what we learned from taking histories from them, and also coaching them through the program and getting a lot of information from them, them on their diet and lifestyle. I, you know, I have to toot my own horn, but I'm going to be honest with you. We learned things from these people uh, and confirmed, Jim and I confirmed things from these people's histories and, and labs that we'd known ourselves, but that we don't hear anybody else talking about. I've never had happier patients than we had in the program. I think you should definitely tune into the webinar. It is going to be excellent. And without further ado, let's get into how I use UVB light to heal. All right. Starting with the first objection that I get from anyone who I talk about using ultraviolet type B phototherapy to treat. So first of all, what is UVB light? So UVB light is a very specific spectrum of light in the ultraviolet range. To give you a big top-down view of this, ultraviolet light is light that is higher in the spectrum than violet light and there's UVA and UVB and UVC. UVC exists in nature in trace elements or trace amounts. You can learn more about that in Roland Van Wick's book, um, Light Shaping Life. That's work of Fritz Pop going all the way back to Alexander Gerwich in the 1920s. I won't get any deeper into that. If you decide to fall down that rabbit hole, have fun. Uh, and don't forget to come out and get some sunlight while you're not busy reading those papers. UVB light is the spectrum of light that makes vitamin D in your skin, as well as various other effects. Ultraviolet type A light is the type of light that triggers tanning and darkening of the skin. Okay. Now, the reality is there's lots of effects of UVA, UVB light on the skin. And so I don't want to get into all those effects. We're going to get into some of them, but largely they're academic. Okay. But the key here is to understand that not all ultraviolet light is the same. A great example of this that you should know is that indoor tanning beds and tanning lamps use ultraviolet type A light. Ultraviolet type A light is the number one light that's going to create skin aging 
and increase your risk for skin cancer, which is why tanning booths are so strongly associated with skin cancer. But like I tell people all the time, if the sun causes skin cancer, then spoons make people fat. The story of how ultraviolet light causes skin cancer or contributes to skin cancer risk is not linear, and it's much more complex than most people have been led to believe, which is why I still use ultraviolet type B light in my practice, unlike most of my colleagues. So UVB therapy, phototherapy is using ultraviolet B light to treat skin conditions, right? The skin is the organ that the ultraviolet type B light reaches. So why wouldn't we use it if we can get a therapeutic effect? In fact, in 1904, I believe the Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology was awarded to Niels Finson for using ultraviolet type B light to treat skin conditions. So the first objection people give to me is what about the risk of skin cancer? Fun fact, virtually no one can confirm an increased risk of skin cancer with the use of ultraviolet type B light. And that's very important. This is a big review of all the studies from 1966 to 2002. All studies eventually showed no increased skin cancer risk with UVB phototherapy. That's really important, okay? That's why I have a UVB light behind me that I will use to treat my own skin and in order to maintain my vitamin D levels. I am not afraid of that light for reasons we're gonna to continue to talk about today. Known and potential new risk factors for skin cancer in European populations. Notice this is European populations, right? A lot of what I'm going to be talking about today pertains mostly to people who have pale skin. There is a lot of inf interesting like, counterintuitive information out there for people who have dark skin tones on the effects of UV light on their risk of skin cancer. Newsflash, an enormous amount of skin cancer happens in people who do not have fair skin, which is part of why I say if the sun causes skin cancer, then spoons make people fat, okay? But what are the known risk factors, particularly for pale-skinned people who, for whatever reason, make up the vast majority of my audience? So the usual associations were observed for sun exposure and pigmentation characteristics more pale skin, more skin cancers. Chronic sun exposure being most strongly associated with squamous cell carcinoma risk and nevi and atypical nevi with uh, cutaneous malignant melanoma risk. Interestingly, use of ciprofloxacin was associated, that's an antibiotic, with a decreased risk of basal cell. Use of thiazides was associated with an increased risk of squamous cell. Ciprofloxacin was associated with uh, squamous cell carcinoma and thiazines with basal cell carcinoma I find this fascinating. These associations lost significance, so they're not a big deal. But I included them and I wanted to tell you about them because it's fascinating to think about how many things we've never bothered to test that may radically impact our risk of skin cancer. This is very hard to study. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. And so there's still a lot that we have to learn about why people get skin cancer. The fact that a couple of, from my perspective, random medications significantly altered this is fascinating and only implies that there's more things we don't know and that we're going to learn about how to be healthy, okay? Consumption of pomegranate, rich in antioxidants, was associated with decreased basal cell and squamous cell risk, which is a big, big, big part of why I tell patients who are living in hot, sunny environments, you need to eat colorful fruits and vegetables. Today, I had some mango, I had some tart cherry extract, I had some lemonade, I had some supplemental vitamin C, 
I'm going to have lots of green leafy vegetables and carrots and all kinds of deeply darkly pigmented things rich in antioxidants today for this reason. It's a big part of why when people tell me they're going to go keto or they're going to go carnivore and they live in some tropical latitude that I caution them against this, particularly if they have a fair skin type. You know, if you're from a Southern European ancestry, Italy, Spain, if you've got ancestry from a tropical latitude, Southeast Asia, Africa, South America, Central America, you're likely to have genetics and natural skin pigmentation that allow you to tolerate these higher and higher loads of solar radiation. But if you are pale like me, because all of your genetics are from Northern Europe, where it's very dark most of the year, and even when it's not dark, it's pretty cloudy, you're really playing with fire when you start to get into sunburn and really excessive sun exposure, as we're going to talk about. But bear in mind, these are there's really clear risk factors for this, and it's not as simple as just getting lots of sun, okay? So one of the risk factors for skin cancer that I think is underreported and under-discussed is shift work. What does shift work mean? It means working at night. Look at this. Our dose response analysis demonstrated that the risk of melanoma cumulatively increases by 2% for every year of shift work. I think that's fascinating, right? So 2%, if you spend 10 years of your life as, an, as a nocturnist doctor, that means a doctor who works at night, or as a night shift nurse, 10 years, you increased your risk of melanoma by 20%. But nobody is out there shouting from the housetops that shift work causes skin cancer, right? Maybe we should be. One thing I forgot to mention, recent experience of stressful events was associated with increased risk of skin cancer, particularly cutaneous melanoma, which is a big reason why I constantly harp in my coaching programs, which you can find more out about more in the links below about psychosocial, psychological stress and having appropriate support systems in place. I don't think that's ever been more important as people become digitally disconnected from other people. That's very bad for your mental health. You need to have a healthy, emotional, psychosocial life. It's never been easier. In some ways, it's never been harder, but it's also, I think, never been more important. So shift work, bad for you. Why is it bad for you? More on that later. The idea that we should avoid the sun is, I think, a very flawed idea. It's a very dangerous idea, and I want to explain why I think it's dangerous. This is the Melanoma in Southern Sweden Cohort Trial, a landmark study in the history of vitamin D, solar exposure, and skin cancer and cancer in general research. So what they did is they followed all these Swedish women in a 20-year trial called the Melanoma in Southern Sweden Cohort. This is a broad range of, uh, of women in terms of age and what they found. And remember, these are white women almost exclusively, right? Because Sweden is one of the whitest countries in the world. So if you're listening to this, I don't know how these numbers change in Kenya or Chad or Thailand because no one's ever done this study there. Okay. The other thing you would need to know is that even if you change the latitude that people come from, you got to keep in mind the latitude they're at, right? So changing your behavior in Sweden, where in the day, in the, in the summer, you might have a 16 hour day. And in the winter, you might have an eight hour day is not the same as having a 12 hour photo period on the equator day after day, week after week, month after month, year round. Anyway, 
Women with active sun exposure habits were mainly at a lower risk of cardiovascular disease and non-cancer, non-cardiovascular disease death, death as compared to those who avoided sun exposure. Translation, women who actively seek out the sun have a lower risk of death. As a doctor who is an internist and whose primary goal, as stated by my patients, is to help them look good and feel good for as long as possible, that's a really big deal. I take avoiding death uh, very seriously, if you didn't know that, know that. As a result of their increased survival, the relative contribution of cancer death increased in these women. So technically from this study, you could say getting more sun increases your risk of dying of cancer, but it's because you're living long enough to get the cancer. Okay. Non-smokers who avoided sun exposure had a life expectancy similar to smokers in the highest sun exposure group, indicating that avoidance of sun exposure is a risk factor for death of a similar magnitude as smoking. Compared to the highest sun exposure group, life expectancy of avoiders of sun exposure was reduced by 0.6 to 2.1 years. So avoiding the sun is gonna take 0.6 to 2.1 years off of your life. How about them apples, right? All of a sudden the sun causing skin cancer doesn't seem like such a problem, does it? But let's drill down into what this really means, okay? So in order to determine what these, because they said, you know, no sun exposure or sun avoidance, some sun exposure, some more sun exposure, and then lots of sun exposure, right? How did they determine that? Here's, here were the questions they posed. How often do you sunbathe during the summertime? Do you sunbathe during the winter, such as on vacation to the mountains? Do you use tanning beds? Do you go abroad on vacation to swim and sunbathe? Okay. So what you're seeing here is that this is not a simple linear distribution, right? Like, for example, this doesn't capture whether someone works outside every day, does it? It just captures their recreational sunbathing and tanning bed use. The tanning beds introduce what I consider to be a massive confounding variable because using a tanning booth and saying that that's the equivalent of sun exposure is not the same as saying sun exposure because the sun includes lots of different frequencies of light in different combinations and has many beneficial effects as we're going to talk about. So again, I don't think this is the be all end all, but here's the kicker. I cannot tell you how much sun exposure is going to increase your risk of death. To my knowledge, no one has ever in the literature at any point documented that getting more sun did anything but reduce your risk of death, which means that I don't have a good reason to tell any of you to limit your sun exposure. It may increase your risk of skin cancer, Certainly for many of you with certain skin types and genetic predispositions and histories, it will. But the question of whether or not and how much sun you should get has to be tailored to the individual based upon many different factors, which we're going to discuss today. More food for thought, okay? Blue LED light exposure develops intracellular reactive oxygen species, lipid peroxidation, and subsequent cellular injuries in cultured bovine retinal pigment epithelial cells. Translation. Blue LED light produces a lot of the same cellular damage and skin pathology in retinal pigment epithelial cells, which are cells of the eye, that we would expect from sunlight, okay? These results suggest that at least in part, oxidative stress is an early step leading to cellular damage, blue LED exposure, cellular oxidative damage, because blue light exposure at a low dose. means is that indoor lighting is likely contributing to modern skin and ocular diseases, which if you didn't know, are skyrocketing in prevalence and severity. The other day I spoke to a patient who spontaneously 
after vision at the 30 does not become it's become common. People need to be aware of that. Sun avoidance may actually be tanking or, or destroying the health of your skin and your eyes, even though you don't perceive it as being bad for those organs. Another paper on this, blue light induced oxidative stress in live skin. Skin damage from exposure to sunlight induces aging like changes in appearance and is attributed to the UV component of light. Photosensitized production of ROS, reactive oxygen species by UVA light is widely accepted to contribute to skin damage and carcinogenesis, but visible light is thought not to do so. Translation, most doctors and scientists think that UVA light and UV light in general ages the skin and makes you look old and get skin cancer. However, in this study, blue light induced oxidative stress, in blue light induced oxidative stress preferentially in mitochondria, but green, red, far infrared, and infrared light did not. Blue light induced oxidative stress was also detected in cultured human keratinocytes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What that means is blue light can have some of the same skin damaging properties as ultraviolet light. That's very, very important. All right. These results suggest that blue light contributes to skin aging similarly to UVA. How about them apples? Most of you watching this, if you're watching this indoors under LED or fluorescent lighting, which is what most of you are going to be under, if not now, then in the future, thanks to the dearly, dearly, dearly enlightened government that we are blessed and cursed with who have seen fit to outlaw the safest form of indoor lighting, otherwise known as incandescent lighting. Uh, you're being baked in blue light right now that's not balanced by the proper densities of red and infrared light, which is one reason why I'm a huge fan of the sauna space uh, light bulbs and why I use my sauna space every single day as much as I can. Not as much as I can. That makes it sound like I use it a ton. I try to get in there every day. Okay. Increased UVA exposure. Oh, I didn't think this was that interesting. Hold on a minute. This part's interesting though. Cutaneous malignant melanoma has been increasing at a steady exponential rate in fair-skinned indoor workers since before 1940. This is setting the stage for this whole melanoma paradox. A paradox exists between indoor and outdoor workers because indoor workers get three to nine times less solar ultraviolet light. We'd like to point out that this was written 15 years ago. This number is probably outdated. Exposure than outdoor workers, yet only indoor workers have an increasing risk of cutaneous malignant melanoma. Translation, if you are an electrical line worker, a construction worker, a farm worker, if you work outside every single day in a consistent light environment, it does not increase your risk of skin cancer. If you are a white collar desk jockey who lives indoors 97% of the time, and the most sun you get is when you stumble out of your cabana in Cancun during your spring break trip in order to fall into a drunken stupor or a hungover stupor on the beach, after which you get fried like a lobster, you are the one to get cutaneous malignant melanoma and blaming the sun for this is very myopic. Your problem isn't sun. Your problem is in intermittent sun exposure, a lack of consistent sun exposure. Otherwise, the guy who's fixing the electrical telephone pole outside of your office, the guy who's constructing your house or renovating your office outside, whatever it may be, that guy would have the same risk and, and increasing risk of cutaneous malignant melanoma to you, but they don't. Okay. They looked at different factors in this because they hypothesized that uh, one factor is indoor exposure to UVA, which does pass through windows, which can cause blah, 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 blah. A lot of this is very academic. I found it interesting that they did find that indoor solar UVA radiances represent about 25% of the outdoor radiances. I actually didn't know that. 
what that means is that UVA is coming into the indoor environment through our windows and it's prematurely aging people's skin and it's not balanced by UVB, which produces vitamin D. Okay. Melanoma and sun exposure. I want to put a really fine point on it. So all of you get it 100% and there's no confusion. So this is an overview of, of melanoma and sun exposure and what we know from the literature. There was a significant positive association for intermittent exposure. Like I was saying, if you get out into the sun intermittently and not consistently, you are increasing your risk for skin cancer, period, full stop. A significantly reduced risk for heavy occupational exposure. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What does that mean? If you get a ton of sunlight as part of your day job, like you're sun up to sundown outside, you have a significantly reduced risk. I think that's fascinating. A small, marginally significant excess risk for total exposure. There was a significantly increased risk with sunburn at all ages or in adult life. So you must avoid sunburn. Some people hear me say, get more sun, and they may be you know, as pale as a sheet of paper and think that this means they need to go bake or roast in strong, strong tropical light. That's not what I'm saying. If you have the skin type where you go outside on a hot summer's day in Florida and you burst into flames, then you need to get as much as you can without burning. And if that's five minutes where you are, fine. What I care about most is that you don't burn because burns always increase your risks uh, later in life. I didn't know this when I learned about the health effects or benefits of sunlight, and I got some wicked bad burns based on some really half-baked advice from some really crazy influencers, and I wish I hadn't because I just got diagnosed with a uh, atypical nevus that was taken out, and they didn't get all of it, so I have to go back for another revision surgery on Thursday, and I'm not exactly excited about this. So learn from my mistakes. I try everything kind of... Uh, I get pretty excessive with my health and wellness uh, habits. Uh, let me make the mistakes and then tell you how to not make them once I figured it out. Okay. Anyway. Uh, yeah. I think that about sums that up. Narrowband UV phototherapy in skin conditions beyond psoriasis. That concludes the part where I talk about what's really causing me increasing rates of melanoma. Because I think it's indoor lighting, processed food, a sedentary lifestyle, and intermittent rather than consistent sun exposure for the record. There are other factors beyond that. Like I could do probably a whole thing on radio wave and microwave radiation and skin cancer because I think there's a very interesting link, but that's a long story and I didn't have time to incorporate it today. Anyway, now we're going to talk about how we can incorporate UVB phototherapy into clinical practice. So narrowband UVB phototherapy in skin conditions beyond psoriasis. Psoriasis is the number one condition for which UVB is being used today, I believe. Some you could debate that, but I don't want to. It's not very interesting. So lots of people with psoriasis are using UVB phototherapy. But what else can we use it for? Atopic dermatitis, vitiligo, uh, polymorphic light eruption, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, chronic urticaria, lichen planus, pruritus associated with polycythemia vera, seborrheic dermatitis, actinic perigo, and acquired perforating dermatosis. These are not, some of these are common. Atopic dermatitis, very common. Vitiligo, fairly common. T-cell lymphoma, rare. Chronic urticaria, very common. Lichen planus, relatively common, but not that common. Polycythemia vera, rare. Seborrheic dermatitis, rare. Perigo, rare. 
acquired perforating dermatosis. I've literally never seen or heard of it. So that gives you some idea of how rare some of these problems are. But chances are you know somebody with one of these illnesses, and a lot of them are not being educated to the point that this is an option for them, okay? How well does UVB work, okay? I wouldn't use it if it didn't give us a significant clinical response. And if you know anything about me, you know that I tend to attract patients who are very wary of the medical industrial complex, 